WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. I am Rob Dreesline. We are live here on WCCO Outdoors on this Sunday, January 22nd. Very excited to be with you. Uh, we got one football game wrapped up, so good timing here to enjoy a little outdoor chatter uh, before the uh, the other game gets going. Normally, I consider this the most exciting football weekend of the year with some of the best games. A couple of these games a little lopsided uh, for a change. Last year, I, uh, I think all four games on this weekend were, were really tight. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> Good. It should, should be a lot of fun next uh, next weekend with those championship games. Uh, we are coming off the DNR roundtable uh, this past Friday, and so Tim Spielman, the editor of Minnesota Outdoor News, is going to join me here in about 10 minutes. He and I will talk, uh, kind of debrief listeners on what we saw at that event. Uh, we've talked a lot about ice fishing the past uh, several weeks. Uh, hey, tis the season and just how challenging it has been ice-making-wise, it's looking like next weekend it's going to be really cold, like single-digit highs, overnight lows below zero. So we're finally probably going to get caught up on some good ice-making. You heard a news report at the top of the hour about uh, some issues involving bad ice. Yeah, that that trend continues. But the good news is we're going to get some cold next weekend, good ice finally. We're still going to have the entire month of February to enjoy some good late-season hard water fishing for walleyes before that season closes what, the 26th of February, that last Sunday of February, whatever that is. So there's still some good opportunity out there. In the meantime, I alluded to this last week, uh, there's some open water fishing out there, believe it or not, right here in Minnesota going on as we speak. We're talking stream trout. And a guy named Dave Anderson from On the Fly Guide Service is going to join us at the bottom of the hour. We're going to talk to Dave a little bit about stream trout fishing opportunities right now. It's all catch and release Barbless hooks, no bait. You got to be dedicated. You're not out there enough in, in your wheelhouse. You don't have a big screen TV going on in the background. This is for pretty hardcore folks, but we got a lot of those here in Minnesota, and it's a great time to go out and catch some beautiful uh, brown trout, brook trout, rainbow trout, whatever it might be. Next weekend on the show to talk a little bit more about other things other than ice fishing, I think we're going to talk about winter small game hunting opportunities. Believe it or not, there's some good ones that go till the end of February for rabbits and squirrels in particular. And then this past week, the SHOT Show wrapped up in Las Vegas, the Shooting, Hunting, Outdoor Trade Show, the biggest trade show in the uh, the firearms industry, the hunting industry. Uh, I had a guy out there, Phil Freebalt, I think. We'll see if we can get Phil on next week and talk a little bit about how that event went. Uh, it wrapped up on Friday. So uh, a, lot, a lot going on, a lot to talk about uh, over the next hour uh, looking, if you got something on your mind, you want to check in, give us a call. Uh, the, the hotline here is 651-461-9226 if there's anything on your mind. A couple quick topics I thought we would uh, chat about before our first break. One, this Wednesday, uh, what would that be, January 25th, is the when the permits become available for the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness for 2023. If you want to get up there and you want to uh, do some camping, you want to get into a prime spot, uh, you want to you want to apply as soon as you can, as soon as that application period begins, this Wednesday, 9 a.m. January 25th. Uh, hey, that's that's looking ahead, right? That's positive. That's, that's looking ahead to spring and summer and some opportunities out there. Uh, a negative thing, we got uh, February 3rd, Maple Lake Ice Derby. That has been canceled because of uh, some marginal 
uh, ice that I alluded to earlier. So a couple of housekeeping items that I wanted to bring up uh, there quickly. A quick little rant that I thought I would uh, broach before we go to break. There was a really excellent piece on MinPost, MinPost.com. I don't know how many folks are familiar with that uh, fine newsmaking site. A gal named Ann Radalat, I believe she's there, uh, Washington, D.C., one of the Washington, D.C. correspondents, wrote a really fine piece about what the GOP takeover in the U.S. House means for the Twin Metals mine, which has been quite controversial. Uh, I have written about that. I've talked about it on radio a little bit. I'm not, uh, I, I, I don't think that copper sulfide mining uh, is is a fit with northeastern Minnesota where we've got some of the purest waters left in the lower 48. Uh, that's not an anti-mining stance. I think uh, I think our um, our iron mining uh, that is uh, that has gone up that has gone on up there for many generations is absolutely fine and compatible and, and you know should remain but this copper sulfide mining there's just in my opinion too much risk uh, in that area and uh, this piece talking about how the, uh, the 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 Republicans taking over in the US House probably means any Plans to try to ban it in that watershed are probably DOA, at least for the next couple of years. There was a quote at the end, though, that really jumped out at me that I, I, I got to tip my hat to the folks behind Twin Metals. A spokesperson for Twin Metals, Kathy Grawl, said, We cannot meet Governor Walz's goals to boost clean energy and clean transportation in Minnesota without mining. The greatest risk to the boundary waters and the broader environment is climate change. Fighting this climate risk with clean technologies requires the minerals that are abundant in the ground in northeastern Minnesota. I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant quote uh, from Twin Metals because it's it's true uh, that with the Democrats and it seems like with the big media in particular, the only environmental issue you hear about anymore is climate change. Uh, you, you know, if 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 you talk uh, if if you if we watch the media talk about an environmental topic or policy, it always comes back to climate change. And so when when that seems to be the only environmental issue that one party wants to talk about, I got to give Twin Metals credit for swinging it back around and saying, uh, hey, you want to fight climate change? You're going to need things like electric vehicles that use batteries, that use nickel, that use copper, that use all these things that apparently this is one of the largest stores of these kind of minerals left in the world is in northeastern Minnesota. There's other too, but others too. But there's sounds like there's a lot there, and uh, I I thought that was a compelling quote that those folks made. That doesn't mean I I want to support that mine in that area. I just think there's there's too much risk to those pure waters that, and it's not just a boundary waters thing. It's not just a you know a thing for the for the people paddling around in their canoes. You know those waters they go all the way up through the border country, Lake of the Woods, Rainy River, uh, up through Canada, Winnip- Lake Winnipeg, all the way to Hudson Bay. There's there's a lot of water on the line, and that's why I've kind of wanted to hit the pause button when we talk about copper sulfide mining in that region. Well, that's my rant for this week's edition of WCCO Outdoors. I want to get in a break now. We're going to jump in with Tim Spielman. He always gets me laughing. He's always good for some chuckles. We're going to debrief on the DNR roundtable that occurred this past Friday. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. We're back, WCCO Outdoors on News Talk A30. I am Rob Dreesline. 
We are here until the top of the hour, so a lot more outdoor chatter coming at you. I do not want to waste any time before we uh, jump in with my next guest here, first guest of this week's broadcast. Tim Spielman is the editor of Minnesota Outdoor News, a gentleman I've worked with for many years. And uh, we're coming off the big Minnesota Department of Natural Resources roundtable this past Friday. Tim and I were both there, and I thought it would be fun to debrief live on air with all our fine listeners and talk about that event a little bit. Tim, are you with me? I am here. Are you with me? I am. Good to hear you. I appreciate you calling in on a busy football Sunday. I know you're a big football guy, and um, so. I, but we got a little little pause here between games, so the timing's pretty good. Yeah, go Bengals. Yeah, there you go, uh, Tim. Yeah, we're coming off the roundtable. This this event happens every year in January, typically. Uh, there was one that was virtual. Uh, there was one that was just flat out canceled, I believe, and then we had one that was in June of this this past year also delayed because of COVID, but back on our January schedule now. Kind of an important event where the DNR sort of lays out what their agenda is kind of going to look like for the coming year. Uh, if you and I have been doing our jobs, we're not real surprised by what we hear because we, we've already kind of covered it. We should kind of anticipate what's coming up. But well, did anything jump out at you? Any uh, Were there any aha moments for Tim Spielman at the uh, 2023 DNR Roundtable? I hate to say it, but not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there were uh, there were a couple interesting uh, nuggets I picked up along the way, but uh, to me, it 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 mostly mirrored what we've seen the past few years, and that seems to be a gradual but steady departure from the things we were accustomed to for many years, uh, wildlife and fish related things and topics that pertain. Uh, to hunters and anglers, which is how the roundtable began. Um, I think we've <clears throat> gone down a road, and this is uh, how it's going to be, at least for the near future, and that in, that in, involves uh, lots of people. I think I, I, I didn't get a head count, but I heard 400 were invited, which is a really large event, <clears throat> and therefore um, uh, the, the topics are, are uh, quite varied. They go far beyond what, what uh, typical hunters and anglers are, uh, I shouldn't say interested in, but, um, you know, topics that, that, uh, they would like to discuss, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd say. Yeah. I, and I was going to get into this a little bit, but, and I will come back around. There was, there's a little meat to the bones I want to, I want to come back to, but I want to follow up on your point, which is, yeah, it definitely, the hook and bullet agenda items were, were pretty few and far between. And I, I think it's kind of worth asking, you know, how much of this event is funded by, the Fish and Wildlife Division, the Game and Fish Fund. I suspect a good chunk mm-hmm. of it or most of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not out of line for some of us to say, wait a minute here, Let, let's spend some time talking about the things that are near and dear to the guys and gals who are paying the yep. bills. Uh, yep. yeah, that said, uh, you know, there were a couple, I thought, tang- you know, important tangible moments. The day before we found out about uh, the governor's budget, he, he released the, the second phase of his budget. Uh, he, he calls it the get out more uh, the, the get out more effort, uh, and there's 118 million dollars here uh, that the governor has said, uh, yeah, we're going to devote to uh, to hatcheries and uh, in other outdoor recreation things, uh, fish hatcheries. We're talking here as well as uh, boat landings, boat accesses. This is something Minfish, uh, an organization that that advocates for fishing, has been demanding for over a year, uh, and you know, so that that was positive. I mean, we're sitting on this big old this big old budget surplus and by golly the governor says he's he wants to prioritize some of it for uh, 
and something that you and I might consider really obvious, this aging, aging infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are needs that have been there for a long time, as you and I know. And I don't know uh, how far that, you know, when you talk about that amount, I mean, it sounds like a big number, but look at the, look at the, uh, budget surplus in itself mm-hmm. i mean that's that's a huge number and i'm not trying to be uh uh not thankful that maybe there will be some money for the hatcheries but um when you talk about the expenses that uh <clears throat> at least the waterville hatchery i mean <clears throat> that one by itself is going to cost a ton um fixing lake access is is going to cost a lot and it's a step forward but uh i you know, it's it's something that that probably should have been years ago before we got to this point, anyway. Um, so, how far how far that that funding uh, actually uh, carries us and and what it can do, I guess that remains to be seen. Tim, I don't know how much it costs to fix one lake access, but I got to think with labor and materials and freight these days, you can hit seven figures fixing one <laughs> one yeah. boat landing. You know, a big, a big overhaul, uh, pretty darn fast. Uh, Tim, you know, there were a number of uh, small group sessions uh, that, that you and I both sat in, and I know you sat on in on one, what's new with wildlife, elk, moose, wolves. Uh, I don't know who was in charge of Kelly Strack, uh, the DNR chief. Did she uh, give the talk on that? Were there any anything in that that uh, that you didn't know about, or was it just kind of updating folks on um, the wolf populations, actually, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, there was. <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, it was uh, elk, moose, and wolves. So a couple of, well... <laughs> All three pretty hot topics. Some of them uh, interrelated, and you know, it's it's one of those things. It's uh, that I, I was thinking about later. You know, the the DNR prides itself on being transparent about what it, uh, you know, its activities and things like that, and that's great. But you know, uh, actions speak louder than words, and we we get press releases that are, I'm sure most agencies do it, that are kind of touchy feeling. Instant, not insignificant, but you know they're 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 okay. That's what they are. But uh, on the elk front, um, something that a lot of our uh, a lot of hunters and, and others are interested in is the uh, possible elk reintroduction in the Northeast, which mm-hmm. would be uh, Carleton County primarily. You know, in that Cloquet South of Cloquet area. And the Fond du Lac um, Band of Ojibwe would be involved in that too, right? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and it seems to be something that's. Uh, from what I've read and what I've heard that the, the DNR has uh, dragged its feet on a little bit um, for various reasons, disease concerns probably at the top of the list, um, moving disease-free animals and, and uh, you know, to an area, uh, there's landowner concerns and things like that. But apparently there was a get-together of the DNR and uh, at least Fond du Lac and maybe another band, I, I forget. But, you know, those are the kind of things that people want to know about, Um that that I think the department has an obligation to keep people in in the loop uh, regarding you know where where are things at I mean something like that sounds like it's uh, and I'll have to follow up on it but it sounds like something that um, could be significant in the whole process so that was probably the one takeaway there um, wolves came up and and uh, you know there were <clears throat> a couple of folks that had questions about deer numbers and and uh, how they relate to wolves and. I, I guess one thing that bugged me a little bit there was you, you talk about funding for the roundtable. I ask about funding for wolf management right. and monitoring <laughs> when it's it comes out of uh, <clears throat> deer hunters' pockets. Right. And, you know, the DNR is pretty uh, proud that it is inclusive in uh, its latest wolf management plan. But 
I've always said, you know, if, if uh, <clears throat> their wolves are managed by the federal government right now, and yet we do wolf counts and other monitoring and some types of management, and that, that, the dollars for that, the vast majority come from deer hunters. And I've always tried to connect the dots on that. And uh, 50 cents doesn't sound like a lot out of your deer license, but um, I'm about principle, and to me that's not uh, – uh, just not right. Mm, yeah, no, I'm with I'm with you. I, I, I on a totally different point. Uh, I was I sat in on the uh, the technology discussion. You know, how is technology altering the hunting and fishing experience? So you, a lot of the emphasis was on things like Onyx and apps and GPS, uh, some of those sorts of things. Eric Morkin uh, wrote a story about this that'll be in this uh, forthcoming week's edition of Outdoor News. If folks want more detail on it, but it, it's starting to get a little bit into the fishing side. I wish it had gone deeper. Uh, talking about like forward-facing sonar, and you and I both know fishing guides out there who will tell you how deadly this forward-facing sonar has become. And and when the sure. when the price point comes down on that, and every rube is out there using it, uh, man, oh man, what's this going to do to our fisheries? And and that that struck me as the kind of topic that I would like the DNR to talk about. And I, I you know I don't know what they can do. I mean I, I we we haven't had any luck banning technology in the past, and I'm not even suggesting that's what we should do with this. But it sure seems like the sort of a practical discussion that we should be having at an event like the DNR roundtable. Yeah. Um, you know, um, <laughs> you get some baseline data and this, uh, equipment comes along and I, maybe you have, uh, a select 10, 20 popular lakes and you more closely monitor the fish populations. I don't know if that's going on specific to technology. Um, we've looked at it for other reasons. We've, uh, we had the Sentinel lakes program, which, took uh, the temperature of lakes and the fish therein and other species in all kinds of ways um, just to monitor changes over time. And it seems like um, when it comes to technology like that, it would be something you at least want to keep track of. So if it came to the day when you said, well, um, <clears throat> we're overfishing a lot of lakes or our, uh, our fish are getting smaller, they're getting cropped off, this is why we need to do uh, we need to make a change. Um, you know, you need to you need to look back and say uh, maybe this isn't the entire reason, but it could be part of the reason. And uh, you know, you, you need to be able to provide people with reasons for what you do down the road. Well, Tim, another roundtable has come and gone. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> we appreciate what you do, uh, and I would uh, let listeners know that the uh, this upcoming week's edition of Outdoors, I'm going to write my column about the roundtable. Uh, Tim and uh, uh, our new staff writer, Brian Mosey, will be writing about it, as uh, as well as Eric Morkin, who I mentioned. So there will be a lot of coverage of the event uh, in this week's print edition, and as well as we'll post that online if folks want to see it. So, Tim, thanks for the update. Uh, we'll we'll see you this coming week. All right. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Rob. Thanks for calling in. Have a great uh, Sunday night, Tim. You too. All right. Uh, Tim Spielman, editor at Outdoor News. Let's break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about stream trout fishing uh, so don't go away. You're listening to Rob Dreesline on WCCO Outdoors. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline is with you again, back half of this week's broadcast. When we are done at 6 o'clock, stay tuned for 60 minutes. Then at uh, 7, after 60 minutes, still talking. Uh, Jerry Lynn is not here, however. Uh, so we got a uh, Shaletta Brundage who is going to be filling in for uh, Jerry Lynn Steele this week. Uh, so lots of great programming coming at you after we wrap up. We're going to jump in now with an into an interview with Dave Anderson from On the Fly Guide Service. As promised, we're going to talk to him a little bit about stream trout fishing in the southeast. Here we go.
Hey, jumping in now with a gentleman who's never joined me on the broadcast before, but I'm really excited to have him. Uh, talk about uh, another topic out of doors this time of year. We chatted a fair bit on this station about some of the problems with ice fishing this winter. We didn't have a lot of great thick ice across central Minnesota before we got all that snow. And so that's been a general theme that we've discussed. It's not the best ice conditions for hard water fishing. It's going to improve here, and we're going to have good fishing uh, between now and when the walleye season ends at the end of February. But, you know, there's another activity involving fishing that where you don't have to think about the ice quite as much, and that's winter trout fishing, especially in southeastern Minnesota and western Wisconsin. And a gentleman is joining us now, Dave Anderson, from On the Fly Guide Service in southeast Minnesota to talk a little bit about that. Dave, welcome. Thanks for joining me, first of all. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me. I think a lot of people forget there's there's some great winter trout fishing in southeastern Minnesota. It's, it's still relatively new. I mean, it, how long has the winter trout season been around? 20, 30 years? Uh, and, and do you find more people are participating in it, or is it still pretty lonely out there on those streams this time of year? That's a good question. I think a lot of the traffic on our streams in the in the winter season compared to spring, summer, and fall, is it's pretty minimal. Uh, everything we do when it comes to fly fishing uh, in the winter season really is predicated on weather. We need good temperatures in the 25, 30, 35 degree range. There are some hardcore maniacs that'll be out there when it's 10, 15, 18. Uh, it can be pretty tough going when it's that cold. Um, the biggest problem is your your guides and your fly rod ice up. So you got to pick ice out of your guides about every fifth cast. So if, if you can get mm-hmm. a good day, the weather down here has been pretty good the last you know three, four days with kind of weird foggy overhang, no right. wind, 30 degrees, 32. So it's been it's been very pleasant uh, in southeast Minnesota weather-wise the last, you know, four or five days. Yeah, unlike ice fishing, which has done a really good job of making it a more comfortable experience, right, with heated shelters, portable shelters, wheelhouses, right, where it's basically almost like camping in an RV out there, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and great big suits now that it's very easy to stay warm in those suits. You probably can't wear those big old suits when you're hiking up and down a stream, you don't have a clam portable shelter with a with a heater you can flip up, right? You really are out there in the elements. So it, in that way, it's it's kind of a pure winter activity, isn't it? It is. You know, and you, and you have to dress for the weather. You are outdoors. You don't have any cover. Surprisingly, I dress probably lighter than you may think. A lot of that has to do with just my style. I'm pretty mobile. I like to continue to move and move and move. So I don't want to overheat and sweat out and uh, mm-hmm. chill. But um, I say... You know, you, you are going to dress for the elements. I don't dress over the top. I would say try to keep your hands warm because they are so vital to what we do. It's a two-handed sport fly fishing. Right. You, know, you got rod in one hand, a line in the other. You're changing flies or retying. If they're numb, that's an impossible task. So I think as much as you can keep your, your hands warm, you'll actually have a better experience. You talked about temperatures, and that's not just a human comfort issue, is it? It also affects whether or not some things are hatching, and that might surprise folks. There are actually a few insect hatches that occur this time of year, even in relatively cold weather. Right. Midges would be our biggest uh, hatch during, I would say, mainly January, February. We get into some some stoneflies, you know, as, as we get into February, March. But it isn't uncommon on a nice day that you could walk the banks and you will see little, you'll see midges, little black dots just dotting the snow. You'll see fish rise. You'll see, in, and people probably don't realize that fish will rise to dry flies in January when it's 30 degrees out. They, they will. If the, if the hatch is good enough, the fish will feed. So, yeah, midges is our common one. Stoneflies would be the second. I have a tendency to do a lot more nymph rigging in the wintertime, basic scud with a, with a midge trailer. So 
you have to think about what they're seeing. They're not seeing grasshoppers. They're not seeing caddis. They're not seeing. So everything we do is seasonal. January, February into early March is, is pretty easy. I would say in terms of fly selection, you don't need a big box of flies to catch fish. Sure. And it's going to trend pretty small, I got to right. think. Yeah. One benefit is uh, your back cast has got to be a little easier. I mean, if you're a beginner who struggled with back casting, we have small streams here. Uh, that's the one thing about fly fishing in Minnesota and Western Wisconsin compared to going out West. You don't have huge, big water to accommodate those back casts. And, and so what happens, especially to me in the spring and summers, I'm dealing with vegetation on my back cast. A lot of that vegetation is down right now, isn't it? it it's make it a little easier for maybe a newbie casting. Dave? Yeah, you're exactly right. The, the In terms of streamside debris, the grasses and whatnot, that's non-existent. The, the downside is it feels like you're fishing on the moon because it's so white and it's so blank and it's so barren really the biggest thing is your approach keeping your distance not spooking fish because you do stick out like a sore thumb right now when you're Mm. when when our landscape's white and we have snow and there's no vegetation so keeping a low profile is important being cautious is important taking your time is important you don't just strut up on a hole and hop in at the top you really kind of got to be cautious and and uh, approach it from from afar but to your point yes it is there's less uh, obstruction in your way when you're uh, when you're doing that in the wintertime yeah, we talk a lot about noise uh, with with ice fishing, and I got to think, uh, yeah, that's that's a huge, even bigger issue with trout fishing this time of year. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Jerisline. We're chatting with Dave Anderson from On the Fly Guide Service. OnTheFlyGuiding.com is his website. We're chatting a little bit about southeastern Minnesota trout fishing opportunities, as well as uh, some of the same opportunities that exist in western Wisconsin. It's it's a little colder activity than being in a wheelhouse, but uh, if if you want to have some fun and try something new, this is a great time uh, to give it a shot. So tell me, Dave, do you see many other people out there, or is it is it a pretty lonely pastime? As the weather warms, you'll see more traffic, and I would say I see more traffic not so much winter time, but we start getting to March and April, and everybody wants to get outside, and the weather starts getting to the 40s again. There will be more and more people out, and, and justifiably so. When the weather's nice, you got to take advantage of it. So this season kicked off on Jan 1, I believe, and it runs through the day before the regular stream trout opener, which is April 15th this year. I think it's the Saturday nearest April 15th, which happens to fall on Saturday this year. So you can do this right up through uh, Friday, April 14th, I believe, in 2023. Is it something that that you uh, continue, you know, after the snow melt uh, up until that that stream that regular opener, Dave? Yeah, I you know, I tie a lot of flies in the wintertime and I got to get out of the house. So if it's a nice day, I want to get outside and, and get after it. But um, I would say timing on the stream is one thing, too. It isn't an, in the wintertime. It is an activity. You have to be on the water at six thirty, seven o'clock. It's kind of a banker's hour shift. I, I like mm-hmm. a nine to one, one thirty type of type of scenario. And, and probably the biggest thing that, that people need to keep in mind is is water temperature in the in the wintertime. And what I mean by that is, you know, southeast Minnesota streams are all spring fed. So they run at a constant temperature. What happens when we start getting 35, 38, 40 degree weather is all that snow will start melting and runs back right into the river. So it can actually, you can start your day, stream temps could be 38, 40, 41, 42, and you could do a stream check at 130. It might be down to 34, 33 degrees because all that snow melt actually uh-huh. colds the water down. Sure. It's, it's interesting. I've been out there a few times with some friends and you know, you're catching fish and catching fish and all of a sudden it's like a flip switch and you're fishing beautiful water, you know, has fish and you can't budge one, you get out your stream thermometer and check. And all of a sudden your, your water temps plummeted six, seven degrees and they've, <laughs> they've shut down. 
Yeah, go figure. You know, I have not emphasized enough. This is a catch and release season. It's all barbless, so all your flies have to be barbless and no bait. That goes without saying. You can't go out there and, and drop a worm because this is a catch and release season. Right. And you know, the bottom line is the other thing I want to I want to emphasize to to the listeners is the trout spawn in southeast Minnesota late October, early November. Those those reds are still very vulnerable and very fragile. It reminds me for the for the lake fishermen. It reminds me of a panfish nest when you see them in the shallows in June, kind of that disky shape. So those nests are full of eggs. Those fry will have, you know, an opportunity through the wintertime to, to develop and grow. But I, I can't stress enough, just minimizing where you're crossing in and out of the river. Don't be stepping on reds and, and, and that kind of thing. And it's just one of those things you have to just be conscious of what you're looking at and know what you're saying. So, and back to the sound issue, staying out of the water as much as possible is hugely important. You don't want to give them any advantage that you're there. So the quieter and the sneakier you can be, the better. Yeah, fly fishing has different names for everything, you know, and, and, and uh, right, the, the reds you just referred to, those are basically the nests, the trout nests. In bass or panfish parlance, we'd call those bed. Bottom line, be as low impact as you can. Don't go tromping through the streams, kicking up all kinds of debris, trashing the reds, you know, kicking up a bunch of silt. This is a fragile little ecosystem we got down there. It's, it's an important one. We're lucky to have it uh, in this part of the world, and, and we need to protect it and take care of it. And most of all, enjoy it. And so I, I appreciate you spending some time with me. Dave, you're, you're a trout guide. If folks want to go out and try this, they could use your guide service, I presume. Yeah, they can, they can find me on the Internet. They can drop me an email, get in contact with me, and we can line something up. And it looks like on your website, onthefly.guiding.com, you post uh, stream conditions occasionally. So folks yep, so- can get some information there, too. Exactly. So when I go out, you know, I, I go out and I post pictures of what I'm up to or just basic things that, you know, patterns that are working. And, and like I said, wintertime isn't terribly complicated. You don't need a whole bunch of things in your arsenal to catch fish. It's more about getting good drifts and being patient. Yeah, it looks like you're on, you're on social media. That's how I've met you. You're on Twitter. Uh, you, I presume you're on the gram also probably posting some pictures. Yep. Yeah, Instagram as well. Well, Dave, fun chatting with you. Uh, have a great rest of your week and I hope you're able to go out and, uh, Catch and release some nice brown trout or rainbows or maybe some old Minnesota brookies. Yep. I appreciate you having me, Rob. That was Dave Anderson on the fly guide service on the fly Let's break more of the broadcast after these messages. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline. We've got a few minutes left. If folks want to chime in with a call, we've got some time. 651 461 9226. Otherwise, I will regale you with some of my thoughts on the past week involving some of the news topics uh, in the Minnesota outdoor scene. Uh, Spielman and I talked a little bit about the round table, a nice little debrief there. I have a couple other thoughts uh, that I had from that event. Uh, one, uh, we talked about Governor Walls and his Get Out More, Modernize Outdoor Recreation Experiences initiative. Big chunk of change he's talking about throwing at the outdoors. Uh, that's good. And a gal named Ann Mulholland was there. She was representing the Nature Conservancy. And she thanked the governor for making this part of his economic package, his economic pitch as part of his budget. And I thought that was a good point that she made. And I think it's what's one worth sharing here now that, you know what, the outdoors is tied to the state's economy very closely. Uh, the people buy fishing licenses, they buy fishing gear, they buy hunting licenses, hunting gear, biking, whatever it might be. Our outdoors 
resources is a huge driver of economic activity. Maybe the biggest, one of the biggest top two or three drivers of economic activity in our state. And so these are investments in our future economy. And I appreciated Ann pointing that out, and I think is worth sharing here a little bit too. Overall, I thought Walls came off a little more assertive than I have seen him at past roundtables or other past events. Uh, you know, and, and go figure. He probably is feeling pretty confident. He came off an election that he won by, what, seven, eight points. Uh, he's got the trifecta there in the state legislature. Uh, so, you know, I guess it's to be expected that he's, he's feeling a little more uh, headstrong about what he believes in. And, uh, you know, that's that's what happens when, uh, what do they say, elections have consequences. But just a vibe that I felt as I was uh, listening in. Uh, DNR Commissioner uh, Sarah Stroman, I think it was on Thursday, uh, she uh, there was a committee uh, in one of the environment committees. I forget what it was uh, that uh, passed. Uh, you know, the Senate has got has the ability to approve or not approve uh, governor appointees. And I didn't know this, but I guess uh, DNR Commissioner Stroman was never formally approved by the Senate uh, during the uh, during Walls's first term. It was a Republican Senate, not by much. Uh, but they, you know, they never disapprove, but they, they never technically approve. Well, that process is underway now for the second term. Uh, Sarah flew through the first committee, and I, I think she's expected, of course, to get a floor vote eventually that will approve uh, this appointment. Uh, it bothers me a little bit when the Senate, whatever party it might be, doesn't approve the governor's appointees. You know, the, the governor won, unless, unless it's someone he's appointing is incompetent or, or you know, there's some political reason not to approve that person. I, I think it, it's just uh, good etiquette, you might say, to approve those folks. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't agree with Sarah on everything. I've written that. I've talked to Sarah about that. But I definitely think she des- deserves to be approved by the, the state Senate uh, as, the, uh, as the DNR commissioner. The, uh, the entire DNR executive team... Pretty much staying in place. At the end, uh, there were, what, five or six of them up there chatting about uh, how the roundtable went. Pretty much the same team that's been there from the beginning. A good uh, group of people. Uh, Bob Meyer, one of my favorite people in state government. Uh, He's the agency's liaison at the state capitol and does a a bang-up job, uh, you know, explaining, I think, the agency's position, you know what, what their uh, what their I don't know, goals aren't necessarily the best thing, but you know why their budget is exists in the way that it does. Uh, and he's been he's been at that job for many years. I think he goes back to working for Bob Lassard back in the uh, the nineties uh, as a, as a legislative liaison or assistant, if, if memory serves. I hope I got that right, Bob. Uh, if you're if you're out there listening, uh, just a couple of minutes left. There was an interesting story I wanted to point out in this week's outdoor news. Uh, more firearms owners, comma, more issues at U.S. airports. Uh, I saw this uh, same story the, the day we had it uh, in, in some of the major news media around the country also pointing out that the number of people getting firearms confiscated at airports has increased like fivefold since 2011. There were like 1,300 firearms confiscated in 2011. Uh, it was 6,300 last year. Uh, Maximum penalties, folks, have gone up if you – and the vast majority are people who just forget that they own a firearm. Usually, I presume it's a concealed carry firearm. They forget they have it in their purse or their bag, uh, and uh, they, they take it to the airport, and it gets confiscated. Max penalties, almost $15,000 on that now, folks. 
88 uh, percent of the firearms that the uh, TSA, the Transportation Security uh, Authority, takes are loaded. Uh, try to let's try to avoid that. I'm a gun owner myself. I'm a concealed carry uh, permit holder, uh, and I, I've never done that. I have accidentally had a had a knife in my bag. I, I was I went backpacking a couple years ago to the Grand Canyon. I just grabbed a bunch of gear, threw it in my carry on bag. Didn't think about it. In the bottom of one of these plastic bags was was it was a pocket knife. And of course, you know, they found it when I went through security, and I, my jaw dropped as soon as I saw it. And, and I apologized, and they said it happens all the time. Uh, and I said, just just keep it. it. It wasn't a real valuable knife. So I can see how people would forget, you know, s- simple things. But a, a gun is obviously a, a much a bigger object and uh, potentially more lethal than a than a uh, than a knife. So uh, try not. Let's. I think we need to collectively as a society work to turn that number around. It's been going up every year. Uh, since 2011, and uh, uh, let, let's uh, let's turn that around. Like I say, I don't think it's hunters that uh, are driving that. I think it's uh, probably concealed carry. Hey, we're out of time. I appreciate all the listeners, all the guests who were with us. Uh, stay tuned. Top of the hour, 60 minutes uh, is going to be with us next week. We'll, we'll have Tony Peterson, and we'll probably have a shot show update. So there'll be some good content here again next week on WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Dreesen. I'm signing off. Have a great week out of doors. WCCO Outdoors.